The Watership Down podcast is intended for listeners who are familiar with the plot. There may be spoilers. This episode is scripted by John Ruths, Javier Ramos and Newell Fisher and is narrated, recorded and edited by Newell Fisher. Hello and welcome to the Watership Down podcast episode 90. Well, we did it. Again. We went through the entire 1978 film in detail, taking just over seven months as opposed to the year it took to go through the book. And what's more, we got to this point during November 2022, which is the 50th anniversary of the publication of the original novel. This anniversary was a, was a story on the ITV News at 10 here in the UK on the day I published episode 89 last week. It is that important a cultural event here. It featured an interview with Richard Adams' daughters, which was amazing to see. This episode is the second one after they finished themed episode, the first one being number 54. Have a listen to that one if you haven't already, because the plan for this podcast I set out in that episode very much still applies. So what now? Well, as far as I'm concerned, we have now finished our analysis of not only the film, but also of the Watership Down canon, a word that I am told can be used to refer to that which is true in an imagined universe. This definition might cause some controversy, as it means that saying Tales from Watership Down is not canon means that the stories it features of life on Watership Down after the end of chapter 50 of the novel, but before the epilogue, are not as much a part of the story of the Warren on Watership Down as the original story. The final arbiter in all this, I guess, has to be the fandom, and I will be seeking their views on this subject at the appropriate time. And thank you to my friend Corwin Brock for your thoughts on this subject. So from now on, the focus of this podcast moves on to interpretations and expansions of the Warship Down universe, the Apocrypha, if you will. That is to say, those films and books based on Warship Down, but not part of what I am calling the canon. The focus also moves on very much to a revisionist perspective rather than an originalist. And yes, I am putting this idea of canon versus Apocrypha out there to spark a debate. What am I like, eh? I now plan, as has happened before, to spend four episodes on other themes around Warship Down. I won't go into detail yet, but my plans are coming together, and those of you with a thirst for all things Warship Down are in for a treat. Captain of Owsler John Roos has sent me his thoughts on finishing the film, which I will go through, we will go through later. First, though, a look at a side of niche podcasting that is worth a proper mention. What ship down as a special interest? I've had an email from Javier Ramos in Melbourne, Australia, that bears reading out in full, and not just because it says nice things about me. Honest. Quote, I'm currently binge listening to your wonderful podcast, and much gratitude and appreciation I give you for this wonderful, in-depth, detailed, wonderful podcast. I discovered this book in the early 80s in my teens, and it has had a strong influence on my journey in life. I've lost count of the times I've reread this amazing book and its magic. Hazel's leadership and care, compassion and vision, the strong bonds of community, indeed the characters became real to me. I grew up in my family entangled in a sect religion. The strict rules left me feeling very alone, yet in, in, in this book I found a friend. It is a nurturing comfort to me, and in my life one of his few constant passions that have travelled with me, and I am in my early fifties now. I connected so much to your narration and discussions, and indeed have learnt so much more than I thought was possible about this book, but I cannot thank you enough for the joy and comfort it has brought me to connect to your kinship. I travelled to the UK a few years ago, and I travelled as close as I could get to, to Watership Down. 
I was nowhere near as brave as your video. I delighted watching of, of the River Enborn, yet knowing I was geographically close to the setting of this book is a joyous memory I treasure, and I do hope to return one day and be more adventurous. I'm particularly interested in knowing how you're going with your diagnosis of autism, which you mentioned, as I, as I feel I, that I may well be on some spectrum, yet I'm not sure where to start in the process of diagnosis, or if, for me, what I would do next with the information. Complex as this subject is, all I simply want to say is thank you, as you speaking so bravely and honestly about it has given me inspiration and also comfort that we share a common love for this book. Brother, thank you for your time and dedication. One of the new angles that I have been pondering as a result of your podcast is just how accepting the Watership Down Warren was to diversity. It didn't matter if you originated from the Cowslip Warren or Ephrafa or Nuthanger Farm, all were, from my interpretation, accepted and treated equally. End quote. Thank you, Javier, for those kind comments and for reminding me of something very important, something that did not even occur to you when I started this podcast. When you make a highly niche podcast such as this one, in order to indulge one of your special interests, you are not just responsible for the therapeutic value it has for you. You also, as it builds a following, take on some responsibility for the therapeutic value it has for those listening on the spectrum for whom it is also a special interest, because they will find it and it will come to matter to them a lot. As we've reached the effective end of the second season of this podcast, I want those of you to, to whom this applies to know that I take this responsibility seriously, and I will always keep you updated on the future development of the podcast. I've said in the past that this podcast potentially has a shelf life as an ongoing concern rather than an archive, but any changes to the schedule, etc., will never come as a surprise if I can possibly help it. And I will, of course, keep you all updated on my diagnosis, whatever it is. I'm currently about one year into a two-year waiting list on our wonderful National Health Service, as I decided I would not be paying for a quick diagnosis, even if I could afford to. During a global pandemic, my diagnosis was not exactly a priority, so I've been happy to wait. As for what to do with such a diagnosis? Well, once you have it, it is official and can help at least here with obtaining support to tackle any mental health issues or such things as underemployment, which has been a feature of my life for years now. The simple fact is that as soon as I realised I needed to seek a diagnosis and crucially started acting upon the consequences of that realisation, my mental health improved immediately, almost shockingly so. So I may well be onto something here. So much about my life just started to make sense. I cannot emphasise enough how important what I have just said is, or may be, for anyone listening to this who needs to hear it. Forget about Watership Down for just a moment and listen to that bit again, and again. Because if you are autistic, that fact alone has serious implications for your mental health and for your probable lifespan. So if what I am saying seems relevant to you, please act upon it. Without the realisation that I needed to seek a diagnosis, there is simply no way this podcast would have started. Because suddenly, indulging a special interest unashamedly became okay, as opposed to a source of embarrassment, because I now knew that doing so had serious therapeutic value. And if neurotypical people have an issue with a special interest of yours, and indulging it is causing no one any harm, then the best response, I think, is to smile sweetly and ask them what sports team they follow then walk away as they do the mental gymnastics. Finally, on this subject, Javier, for scouting services to neurodiversity, welcome to the Ausler. You have more than earned it for highlighting this to me. As a final thought, as I said in reply to Javier, doesn't Fiverr come across as just a little neurodiverse?
Should we claim him? Just a thought. John Ruth's on finishing the film. John has sent me the following thoughts on this milestone in the podcast. Quote, Looking back, it's amazing that a 1972 book that did not get to the US until 1974 was already an animated film in 1978. Also amazing to me is that it was written from about 1966 to 1968, and only because the daughters of Richard Adams insisted he wrote out his excellent rabbit stories told on road trips. The book had an amazing and unexpected impact. Having a hard time even getting it published, when it finally did get into the hands of readers, it really took off on its own. Many editions of Watership Down in the US featured this excerpt from the London Times, quote, I announce with trembling pleasure the appearance of a great story, end quote. To this day I read this and it makes a statement. It also sums up quite well how this superb book was received by the general public. This was certainly not the only time when the preponderance of the book publishing community that an author has access to actually works to prevent the release of a truly great work. When this happens, it's certainly not on purpose, but there are times when they don't connect with what people will read and what they really want. I feel that Watership Down is proof of this. Like a longer work, J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, Watership Down actually has many stories embedded within it. It does contain an overall story arc, but along the way are many stories that are unique unto themselves. Some are skillfully strung together, while others are really separated. Still others concentrate on rabbit lore and feature both Elahera as the main hero, along with his stalwart companion Rabscuttle. Others include Frith, who is the big G god and not a rabbit himself. Some of these also include characters such as Prince Rainbow, that we're not entirely sure of, except that they have a great deal of authority over all animals, seemingly. The stories are like a patchwork quilt with many kinds of fabric, but one with with an overall sense of theme to it. The quality of the storytelling, the amazing characters, the setting being based on real places, a lapine language and the internal rabbit mythos that Richard Adams created all stand out. Each one of these could be seen as the pillar of a great building, each doing its part to hold up an enormous roof. Easy to see as a children's story, the book was loved by children and adults alike. Stories of this quality simply don't come along each and every day, and this also makes it special. A former soldier then turned civil servant, Richard Adams, went on to become the full-time author. He wrote many other books, including others with animal themes, though none of these were another watership down. Is this just a bit of a letdown of sorts? Yes it is, and I'd say it's because we all probably wanted him to succeed in a similar watership down sort of a way. I don't know if Adams saw it that way himself. I certainly would not call Adams a failure in any way. I have never tried to read any of his other works, and I suppose I feel slightly ashamed for this. I wonder how many other podcast listeners have read any of his other works and how they felt about them. Another way to view the impact of the book is the fact that there was a sequel of sorts in the form of Tales from Warship Down that was published nearly 25 years after Warship Down first came out in the UK. If Warship Down had not had the amount of buzz surrounding it, this second book would likely have never been published. Looking back again to the mid-1970s, I remember when this book was put into my elementary school library in a small Minnesota town. I was only eight years old, but remember the sense of pomp and circumstance. It was one of the first times in my life that I became aware that a medal could be awarded for something. I was impressed, however, at age eight. I really was not quite old enough to read this book. I ended up not reading it until about 1990 in one of my earlier years in the US Army. Yes, I first read Warship Down around 16 years after it surfaced in the US. I do feel ashamed for this. 
And now the year is 1978. A movie is being played in my small hometown at the Village Theatre as a Saturday feature. Not being a science fiction feature, along with me being 12 years old, I did not attend, but I do recognise the movie being based on that book that got so much attention back in 1974. I'm definitely ashamed of not attending. If I had, much like if I'd read the book earlier than I did, I would have had that much more enjoyment out of it. While the novel could be called brutal in some ways, it's a bit different in the film because you can see how an animator saw it. The movie does not lack for the flow of blood, but not without purpose. I first saw the film not too long after I read the book. I read the book at the suggestion of my brother Jake, and we naturally watched the movie together on VHS tape. Here is an important and maybe complex question. Is the film faithful to the book? Interestingly, both no and yes apply nearly equally. It's just under 90 minutes, so no real way to be totally faithful. Changes had to be made, including some that received the serious charge of abuse of terrain. Many things were cut, much of the rabbit mythos, although some was preserved, other things skipped over, and in some cases blended. But overall, the work is actually quite faithful to the book. One, Richard Adams was aware of it and approved of it. Two, some of the very best things were preserved. The most important characters were transitioned from paper to film quite well, and faithfully. Particularly Hazel, Bigwig, Fiverr, Kihar, Woundwart and the Freyara are very well represented. Others, such as Holly, Blackberry, Pipkin, Heisenslay, Blackavar and Cowslip, definitely have representation, but not in as much detail. Most of the others are often not mentioned by name. As a viewer, you sense they are there, but just can't be represented in a lot of detail. Elacrera is more or less amalgamated with the Black Rabbit. While not as the book told it, it's still effective. So, in spite of many shortcuts, combining certain things and just playing changes, I ranked the 1978 film as canon. It's not as canon as the book, but that's a tough thing to be with any written work told on screen. With the film, we also get new benefits. Some of the animation told the story in a way that might be tougher than the book. In particular here, I'm thinking about about some bird's eye view shots of the rabbits moving along the ground. It was a neat idea to include this in the film and temporarily gave the audience the same point of view enjoyed by Kihar. There is also a hit pop song featured in the film. I am, of course, referring to Bright Eyes by American Art Garfunkel. We're also treated to some superb voice acting, mostly by distinguished, a distinguished stable of mostly veteran British actors. Many of the voices are recognisable. For me, none more so than Ralph Richardson's portrayal of the Freyara and John Hurt's portrayal of Hazel. For a Brit, though, I expect that there were more voices that even kids of that time would recognise. Finally, we get theme music for the 1978 film that is very special. How special is it? Well, along with the actors' voices, I also hear the theme music when I reread the novel. For me, the book Hazel sounds just like Hazel from the 78 film. I hear the music in my imagined background while reading. So, in a maybe serendipitous way, the film actually augments the book. My final word on this is that it's easy to see both as canon. While the film does truncate such things, it does so with the greatest respect to the book that inspired it. End quote. Is it canon? John has added the following thoughts concerning the possible canon status of the film. Quote, once upon a time, back in the 90s, while I have both loved both the book and the film, I probably would have not considered the film canon. What changed? Simply going back and watching the movie enough times over the years. Eventually the film won me over, and that's a feather in the cap for, for the film. 
Case in point, I can watch the Peter Jackson Lord of the Ring movies, but to me they fall far short of the books. Why? Too much deviation on what we Americans call shooting from the hip. Tolkien wrote the perfect set of books, done correctly, or at least better. It would have taken around two films per book, or six overall. I think fans and the general movie market would have supported this, my guess anyway. I like those films, I can watch them, but they're also a thorn in my side. As far as the Hobbit films, I cannot watch them at all. Terrible all the way around. I'm a self-admitted Tolkien originalist. When I watch Star Trek, the animated series, I see it as the fourth and fifth seasons that the original show never had, so canon to me. Series creator Gene Roddenberry always denied that the animated series was canon, but only because he was being a jerk. On the other hand, when the reboot movie came out in 2009, I watched it, but once only. For me, personally, I just don't accept it. The same goes with Star Wars, and it may be the most contentious with that series. On the other hand, Watership Down 1978, much like the animated Star Trek, shows a great deal of respect for its progenitor work. For me, that's the linchpin. Showing a lot of respect or reverence for what, for what something came from more or less gives it the ability to change a bit. A survey might be nice on this. I can definitely see folks not feeling the same and that anything outside of the original work to not be considered canon unless Richard Adams wrote it himself, such as Tales from Watership Down. To some extent, we're all stuck in our ways. I stubbornly st still normally make two spaces after the end of a sentence. This is not in accordance with current writing guidelines, but I just don't care. We're also victims of our own experiences. Here's how I see the canon dynamics. First, the pros. One, Richard Adams had to give permission for the film to have been made. However, I suppose that the Adams estate had to give similar permission for that bad Netflix miniseries production to have taken place, and I guess the other animated series, aka the Canadian series. Two, in 1978, even though animated films were on the rise, there is simply no way a production would have been made of, of say, two hours or longer. No perceived market for it. 3. In spite of many changes and deviations, the 1978 film stays true to the lesser number of characters it delves into. Hazel, Bigwig, Fiverr, Woundwart, The Thrayerar, Holly, Heisenthwaite and others are all true to their book form. 4. In spite of the deviations, the story stays overall true to the original. In fact, the beginning and conclusion of the animated version match the book very closely. 5. If after seeing the 1978 film you then apply the voices of the characters to those in the book and or you hear the music in your head when you read certain parts, you most likely see the film as canon. And now the cons. 1. It's different and highly truncated. Some parts are shorter, others are skipped, and some are combined in odd ways. In this way, it simply does not match the book, and therefore, not be, and can therefore not be canon. Two, abuse of terrain. Enough said on that one. Three, too many characters are not del delved into anywhere near close to the way it is done in the book. Four, not enough Elachera stories. These are pivotal parts of the book. Leaving out nearly all of these proves the film can't be canon. Five. Elechera and the Black Rabbit of Inlay are combined in a strange way. Again, this proves the film cannot be canon. Obviously, I am on the prose side of things. However, both sides are pretty reasonable and have compelling reasons. End quote. Thank you, John. To the above, I'll add th I will add this. I now plan to add an Is It Canon section to any episode dealing with versions or expansions of the Warship Down universe. And even if a chapter or episode is not overall classed as canon, if there is any element that is the first or only portrayal of something from the original book, then such an example will be nominated for special canon status. An example of this would be the shapes of the Warren of the Snares that appear in episode 3 of the 1999-2001 TV series. And please note that I said nominated. 
I will be trying to avoid declaring anything canon. Having effectively done so in the case of the novel and 1978 film, I will try to avoid any further such hubris. Next time, we look at a radio play version of Watership Down that it is almost certain you will have never heard, and I talk to the Owsler member who introduced me to it. I may even be able to tell you where you can hear it.